0: Well, we've been looking at what we're calling backstage before Bethlehem. And that, uh, what we've recently begun examining here is the ministry of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the pre-incarnate, pre-birth appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we've seen is that every appearance of the angel of the Lord is for a purpose. It's for a specific mission. And the mission we see this morning is nothing less than to pick the mother of Israel to pick the mother of the nation of Israel, to pick the mother of Jacob, grandson of Abraham, son of Isaac, whose name, as we'll see tonight, the angel of the Lord will change to Israel, and who will, of course, be the father of the twelve sons, from whom the chosen race of Israel will come, and from whom the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be born in Bethlehem. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 24 this morning, and what we have here is really an epic story of how the angel of the Lord We'll pick the mother of Israel. Her name is Rebecca. The whole story is encapsulated in what scholars call an inclusio. It's a beginning and an ending point which are the same. And it really provides the bookends. It provides the, the boundaries for the story. And here's the inclusio. Here's the beginning and the ending point. It is the death of Sarah, Abraham's wife, the mother of Isaac. Look with me at the end of chapter 23... Verse 19, chapter 23, verse 19. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Malchpella, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And then the very end of chapter 24, the last sentence, verse 67. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. And so th- there you have the bookends that define the, the, one of the main reasons for this story. Now, the main feature of Genesis 24 is how the angel of the Lord works. Because unlike most of his other appearances, he's going to work providentially. He's going to work behind the scenes, directing every single event to his desired outcome. But we're not going to actually see him or meet him. We just see that he is the one directing all the events in these 67 verses of chapter 24. Verse 7 Abraham tells his servant that God will send his angel before you. Verse 40, the servant of Abraham recounts that Abraham had promised that God would send his angel with you and prosper your way. Now, his angel is not the specific designation, the angel of the Lord. But the two other times that this phrase, his angel, is used in the Old Testament, both in the book of Daniel, it's very clear that this is speaking of the pre-incarnate Son of God. We should also note that Abraham has already encountered the pre-incarnate Son of God in one of the very few uh, meetings that we're not considering in our series, and that is in Genesis 18, that God appeared to him as a man just before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and in fact, God had two other angels with him. You can read that in Genesis 18 and in 19 also. And we also remember that the angel of the Lord, which stopped Abraham, he was the the, the component of the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, who stopped him from sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22. And it was the angel of the Lord who intervened in the saga of Hagar and Ishmael, the son of Abraham by Hagar. And so when Abraham tells his servant that God will send his angel, this is someone with whom Abraham is already familiar. This must be the one and the same, the singular messenger of help and grace the pre-birth Son of God. And in this case, the angel of the Lord does mighty things, and yet he does them providentially. He does them in the shadows. These providential situations divinely orchestrated to perfectly fulfill the will of God. Now, the providence of God, just to help us understand this, this is labeled after the Latin word providentia, which just means to see ahead. It is the planning ahead, the seeing ahead, and theologically it refers to the -the behind-the-scenes work of God to orchestrate human events, to take the things that we can see and have made them work in such a way to bring about his own purposes. And in fact, today, not only do we see the grand and global purpose of the angel of the Lord picking, choosing the very mother of Israel, I think you're also going to be very encouraged by how the providence of God is at work in your own life as well. In fact, a little bit later, we'll see how some of the elements of the believer in Christ interacting with the providence of God, we're going to see what that looks like when you're trusting the Lord, when you're walking in his will, and when all that he has done for you is to light up one step ahead of you. And we're going to see how does you go about trusting in providence. In fact, this story is going to give us really one of our greatest examples of applying the very familiar verses, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, what? Acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. We're going to see this worked out. And so we're going to stay with this theme of the providence of God as God is working these things out by the angel of the Lord behind the scenes. And I just simply want to show you three areas concerning the providence of God. We'll look at... The demonstration of providence. We'll look at the fulfillment of providence. And we will look at the application of providence. So we'll look first at the demonstration of providence. Second, the fulfillment of providence. And finally, the application of providence. First, let's look at the demonstration of providence. And I want to give you five of them. Five demonstrations of providence. How in this story, God gives these gifts, these demonstrations that he is at work. That he is the one moving The first demonstration of providence we'll call a yearning heart. A yearning heart. Chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Now, Abraham has been greatly blessed by God with wealth, with a great name in the land. And I just want to give you a little perspective on how great Abraham really is. Just a few years earlier, he was mighty enough that he had rescued his nephew Lot, who had been kidnapped, and Abraham rescued him with over 300 trained soldiers that were his own his own personal army and these were all servants who had been born in his own household and these 318 men they defeated five kings in their armies and that had been a few decades earlier and so abraham has only grown in his wealth his camp let me put it this way it wasn't just a couple of tents and a couple of camels this was a small city of tents with servants and animals and wealth and everyone knew who abraham was If I could say it this way, basically by this point, Abraham, having been so blessed by the Lord, is a king without a country. He is a king, and he's very kingly in his demeanor. And so because of the fact that the Lord's promises to Abraham would come through his son Isaac, and since Abraham was nearing death, or at least he believed so, his death was actually about 35 years away still, but he wanted to provide a wife for his son Isaac. You recall that Sarah had been 90 years old when Isaac was born. She died, chapter 23, verse 1, when Isaac was 37. She and Isaac had been very close, as indicated by the end of chapter 24, and the intense mourning of Isaac, which went on for about three years. And so Abraham, by the way, is not under the law of Moses yet. That's still hundreds of years away. That law would prohibit marriage outside the nation of Israel because that would lead to idolatry and and apostasy. So he's not under that law. It hasn't come yet. But since Abraham is the chosen patriarch and it's through his family that the nation of Israel will be formed, the only qualifying family for a wife for his son is his own family, specifically his brother Nahor and that branch of his father's lineage. He had one other brother, Haran, who had been long since dead, long since died. And so the servant of Abraham now immediately has a question. And his question in verse 5 is basically, what if I find a woman from your family, but she won't come with me? How about I take Isaac there? And Abraham answered in verse 6. Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And then verse eight, he says, if the woman is not willing to come back, then the servant is now freed of his oath. The beginning point in the providential working of God to bring back the mother of Israel was very simply the yearning heart of Abraham. And where did this desire come from? Where did it come from? Well, very similar to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Abraham was a man who acknowledged God in all of his ways, his focus was on serving God, knowing God, pleasing God. God was the focus of his life. And this reminds us of Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? Well, it means very simply that if you're, if you're delighting in the Lord, you're seeking to know him, seeking to know his ways, then quite simply, your desires come from him. It's not just that he gives you what you desire. It's he gives you what you are to desire. Does that make sense? Your desires come from God. And so delighting yourself in the Lord comes by renewing your mind continually in the knowledge of God. And what happens then? Romans 12 verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Here it is, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And so that renewal of the mind leads to an ability to know the will of God. And so Abraham's yearning heart, that was the tool that God was using to begin moving this process in the right direction. But we see a second demonstration of providence. We'll call this one a faithful servant, a faithful servant. Now, I have to be honest with you, as 21st century Americans, we get a little uncomfortable with this whole put your hand under my thigh thing that we saw. In verse 2, we kind of just cringe and look the other way. We're wondering what that's about. I hate to tell you this, but it's worse than you think. This is a euphemism for the procreative power of a man. And he says to his servant, put your hand there. Now for us, we're going, well, that's it, that's it, that's it. We're done with this relationship. But this was a different culture in the ancient Near East. What he's saying is that I'm asking you to make an oath about carrying on my family lineage. This is all important to Abraham. It also, by the way, has the idea of, if you don't carry out this charge, the children that come from me will avenge your unfaithfulness. And so this is a big deal. Now, before we see what the servant of Abraham will do, given this solemn charge, which includes an uncomfortable lack of personal space, what is at stake for this servant? What's at stake for him? Well, this servant's name was Eliezer. And Eliezer had been with Abraham for a very long time. In fact, it says here the oldest of his household. This isn't just some low-level cook. This isn't a house servant. He is essentially the prime minister of a small kingdom. He is the chief servant over hundreds and maybe even thousands of servants. What was at stake for Eliezer who essentially served King Abraham? Eleazar was from Damascus. And in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham, still childless, had named Eleazar his heir. All that he would have would go to Eliezer, to this servant. Ishmael has been sent away, you recall that. And if Abraham dies and something just so happens to happen to Isaac, then Eliezer gets everything. Or if Eliezer goes on this mission and fails on purpose, maybe he just goes off for a few months and goes camping and comes back and says, I couldn't find anybody. Then Eliezer retains a greater chance of coming into great wealth, but he doesn't do this. He doesn't do it. Every leader cherishes loyalty and cherishes fidelity above all things in those under him, and Eliezer takes the vow. In verse 9, so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master and swore to him concerning this matter. And not only did Eliezer swear to do his very best for Abraham, Abraham gives him enough goods essentially to start his own clan if he wanted to. Verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Now this is a journey of many hundreds of miles to the north, to Mesopotamia, where Abraham had originally come from. And Eleazar comes to Nahor. This is a city, a town named after Abraham's brother, Our English Bible just says Mesopotamia for the sake of ease. But the Hebrew term means Aram of the river or Aram, the land between two rivers. So this is the incredibly fertile land between the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. And so he's going back to this specific area and we see in verse 11. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. To my master. Look at the heart of this servant, pleading with God on behalf of his master Abraham, and, and to his own detriment. The best thing that could have happened to Eleazar is to simply take those ten camels and keep going, because he would be rich. But he says, "Please grant me success." You know, what a gift this is! That in. His providence, the angel of the Lord, is smoothing the way to the accomplishment of his will, and he does so by placing in Abraham's life the most loyal and faithful servant anyone could ever ask for. How kind and how gracious. In fact, what we see here is that from this point on, from about verse 4 or so, Abraham becomes very quickly the, the offstage character. That he's not there anymore. Now the providence of God is carrying this story. Which brings us to a third demonstration of providence. We'll call this one an obvious answer. An obvious answer. Don't you wish answers to prayer happened like this? Verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. And I doesn't say this here, but I wonder if Eleazar thought, wow, that was fast. That's a that's quick. Now, at this moment, I'll bet Eleazar is holding his breath. This looks promising. Verse 16 The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Now Eleazar put a pretty stiff condition on his a stiff requirement rather on his condition that um, he told the Lord that the young woman who comes should not only give him a drink, that's reasonable, but should also offer to give a drink to his camels. More about that in a moment. And this is exactly what she does. Verses 17 through 20 describe in detail her serving Eleazar and drawing water for the camels. And so Eleazar turns to his camel, and he gets out a small fortune in gold. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels. And he said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Now in today's money, this gold that he got out is worth about $15,000. And he gave her these two bracelets and... He had these these armbands and they would go on her arms and he gave her a ring. Now don't picture a little ring. It's about two to three inches in diameter and it would have gone in her nose. It would have gone in her right nostril. That basically says you are not only wealthy now, I just gave you wealth, but now you look the part. And in this culture, this was something that, that, a, that a high class woman, a princess, uh, somebody who was an heiress, for example, that she would wear this sort of Um, ostentatious jewelry and so it instantly made her not only possessing wealth but looking the part now we find out later in the chapter in verses 47 and 48 that what actually happened here is that he first took the jewelry out then he asked whose daughter are you and when he got the answer he gave it to her now in verse 25 she gives Eliezer a warm welcome to her father's home and Eliezer now stops to give glory to God. Verse 26 The man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. So he stops to worship. And by the way, it says the man bowed his head, probably a little more likely means he knelt and he worshiped. He's on his knees before God in gratitude. And now Rebecca, she takes off. She's going to go home and tell what's happening. And remember, she doesn't know yet why this has happened. Somebody just came up and said, "Uh, whose family are you in? She answered and she got a bunch of gold. That's all she knows. verse 28, then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Such a gift here. This obvious answer that Eleazar receives. Listen, when you're seeking the Lord's will, when you're seeking for clarity and for clear and obvious guidance, this is all part of walking in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians five twenty five, "If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit." What does it mean to live by the Spirit? Well, as we read both Ephesians and Colossians, and we compare those two, very simply, living by the Spirit is the idea of being filled with the Spirit, which Ephesians 5 speaks of. And how are you filled with the Spirit? The book of Colossians has a parallel passage that tells us that we are richly being indwelt by the Word of God. That we know the will of the Spirit by having the knowledge of God's will from Scripture. You're sensitive to the Lord because of the Bible. You're sensitive to the Lord in prayer. You're in constant contact with God, communion with God, a two-way conversation through prayer and through His Word. And so we should expect that the Spirit of God would lead us providentially through obvious answers at times. We should expect that. And I think it's very kind of the Lord, isn't it, when He gives us precisely one choice? We're praying for the Lord's will. How many choices do you have? One. I think that's the Lord's will. That's very clear. I I know in my own life I've seen the Lord direct so very clearly. As a matter of fact, there's at least twice in my life that it seemed extremely clear i was going to go in one direction and in the course of one day that direction was completely changed with big massive blessings as a result the first time i was a young man and i had received a full scholarship to a certain university and i had been rejected by the university i wanted to go to so that was obvious to me and in the same day I got notifications that my scholarship had been rescinded due to some technicality and that my rejection by the other university had in fact been a mistake and they would like to admit me. I'm really glad because I met a young woman named Sylvia there. God's providence. The second time was a little more recently. I was called to pastor a new church plant in North Texas with a bunch of families, a bunch of money, and going in, they were going places And in one conversation I had with him, I knew I was not their guy. And I was left without a place to go. And almost at exactly the same time, I got a phone call out of the blue and said, hey, there's a little church in Bakersfield. It's the providence of God. When you have one choice, you go with it. It's that easy. It is reasonable to expect that if you will delight yourself in the Lord, that's your part. If you will follow after him, it's reasonable to expect that you, you shouldn't be surprised when God gives an obvious answer. And it might not be as soon as you want. It might not be the way you want. But he will do that. And by the way, there's one way I know this. In verses 26 and 27, Eleazar worshiped God for his faithfulness and for his answer before he actually had one. Because it's not until verse 58 that we find out that Rebecca whether or not she's actually going to go. He didn't know yet. He thanked God for the answer before he had it. Now that's faith. That's faith. Is to get on your knees and to say, God, here's my request. Here's the guidance I'm asking for. And I praise you and I thank you for your steadfast love, for your faithfulness in the answer that you're going to give. This is why the psalmist can say in Psalm 4 that I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. So an obvious answer. What a, what a final, what a fine demonstration of providence let me give you a fourth demonstration of providence we'll call this one a willing family a willing family i want you to imagine a conversation like this today hi i just uh, met your teenage daughter out at the village well and we got to talking and she was very nice and she got me some water she got my camels some water to drink and um basically i'd like to take her with me to marry somebody you've never met and you're never going to see her again and i'm pretty much leaving now how do you feel about that slam or the cocking of the gun but that's the conversation that's crazy and yet that's what happened bethuel is rebecca's father but eleazar is welcomed to the home by laban her brother it was customary in the ancient near east that the eldest brother generally did the negotiations of the marriage of a sister and so the family took care of the camels. They fed them. They gave Eliezer water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him, helping him. And they put supper down in front of him like a, like a good host. But he's bursting and he refuses to eat until he tells his story. And now he drops the bombshell. Verse 34. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. Now in a culture that so values family, remember this. They had not seen Abraham in 65 years. Abraham had been 75 when we left. He's now about 140 years old. Remember, this is not too long after the flood of Noah still. And so people are still living longer than we're used to today. Over time, life expectancy has decreased. But to reconnect with the long lost family, this is such a joy. This is such a delight, especially in the ancient Near East where family is absolutely everything. And so these words, I am Abraham's servant. By the way, they would still know him as Abram. But you can hear Abram in Abraham. I am Abraham's servant. These would be words of refreshment and delight and joy. This would be be great on reality TV. Because it would be such an astonishment to them. And the next words aren't too bad either. Verse 35. The Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. Now, stop right there. As you read on in Genesis and you get to know the character of Laban and some of his guys, the, uh, Laban's looking around going, we're rich. And so this is good news too. He's given them flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. Not only did they reconnect with family, but they reconnected with family that was essentially royal. And all that Abraham has is going to his one son. Verse 36, And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. And to him she has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And then all the way to verse 49, Eliezer tells the entire story of the providence of God and how Abraham had promised that the angel of the Lord would give him success. Now, the family of Bethuel was not exactly born yesterday. Rebekah comes home with a fortune in jewelry and up comes a guy with 10 camels that they hope are filled with treasures. Their minds are thinking, I think someone's about to make us an offer for Rebekah. But little did they know that not only is a marriage proposal coming, but also... There will be the added blessing that this is extended family and that Rebecca is basically going to become a princess. This is very much a fairy tale, but it was a fairy tale clearly orchestrated by God, and they knew it. Verse 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. They rightly said that in the matter of the clear revealing of God's will, it was inappropriate to even have an opinion, as if the opinion of man is of any consequence when it comes to the will of God. Now, we'll note that later in the history of this family, Laban turns out to be a cheat, turns out to be an idolater. But even Laban acknowledges God in this providential moment. There's no arguing this. This acknowledgement is not going to be without a price, In all likelihood, they will never see Rebecca again. The journey to Canaan would be many hundreds of miles. It would take a minimum of a month. And if you stop to rest on occasion, one or two months, even more. And yet God provided this willing family, willing to let her go. Now, there had to be one more extremely important demonstration of providence. The fifth demonstration of providence, nobody's asked Rebecca yet. We have a trusting woman, a trusting woman. No one's asked Rebecca how she felt about this whole thing. This is still the same day that Eleazar has arrived in the town of Nahor and has found Rebecca. He's still relating the whole story of trusting God's providence, God's leading. He hasn't even eaten dinner yet. But now Rebecca's family has consented and Eleazar is filled with gratitude. Verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And then Eleazar brings out what would likely be a bride price, a reward for the family giving up the daughter, verse 53. And the servant brought out jewelry of gold, of silver, and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave her brother and her mother costly ornaments. Now this was very important. This was a promise that Rebekah would be well provided for. They didn't have a social security system. They didn't have a government to bail them out of anything. They had to know that she would be provided for. And so he proves that. So now, finally, Eleazar can eat his dinner, he can go to bed, and this is a big day. Next morning, he gets up and basically says, well, we're off. Send me to my master. And that doesn't go over so well. Laban and Rebecca's mother say, let Rebecca stay another 10 days. Then you can go. Now, let's talk about the character of Laban and let's talk about the culture of the ancient Near East. Let me translate, stay another 10 days. What they really meant was, how about another 10 days? And at the end of that, how about another month? Then it's, oh look, the rainy season is here. Why don't you return next year? That's what they would do. Verse 56 But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Now, before we get to the next verse, you have to remember something. Rebecca is very young. She's probably a teenager. She is tied to her mother's apron strings with knots that nobody could undo. And so Laban and mom say, let's ask Rebecca." Does she want to go now? What do you think a teenage girl who's been tied to her mother's apron strings is going to say, oh, yeah, I'll stay 10 days. And so they roll the dice on this and look what this precious young woman says. Verse 57, they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, one word in Hebrew, yep, I will go. I will go verse fifty nine so they sent Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. They're going to leave. Rebecca is bringing with her the woman who had raised her, much as we might think of a nanny today. I'm going to take a little side note on her. Her name was Deborah. she was faithful to serve Rebecca, and in fact, Deborah is very important to us as a little blessing of God upon Rebecca upon her family. She's a symbol of God's faithfulness to this family because Deborah would not only raise Rebecca that she would also be the nursemaid who would look after little Jacob and Esau, the twins that Rebecca would have. In fact, later, when Jacob had to go away back to his own country, Rebecca had promised in Genesis 27 to send for him when it was safe to return. We don't have a lot of details about that. But after that, in Genesis 35, Jacob is returning after two decades away. Now he's returning with his sons, with a daughter, and the inspired text of Genesis 35 takes a moment to note that on the way back to Canaan, Jacob buried Deborah tenderly under an oak tree. And in fact, Deborah had gone to Jacob for some reason, and faithful to the end, just like God would be to Jacob. And how did Jacob feel about Deborah? He named her burial place Alan Bakuth, which means the oak of weeping. And so this. Little nursemaid that nobody's ever heard of, Deborah, she serves as a symbol, as a representative of how God cared for Abraham, how God cared for his family. God was tender. And how did the providence of God work out? Well, we've seen five demonstrations of providence. I'd like to show you five fulfillments of providence. Five fulfillments of providence, and all of them are centered on the person of Rebecca. Now, at this particular moment in Genesis, in the, in the saga of Genesis 24, the reader is focused solely on the redeeming qualities, the wonderful qualities of Rebecca. We know in later years that she'll have her issues like many in her family. She'll show a sneaky side. And probably she and Isaac would not always see eye to eye. But I would take as the example the comparing of the books of 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Both 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles are accounts of the life of King David. And in 2 Samuel, you get David in all of his sinfulness, all of his humanity, outlining some of the very worst moments of his life. And yet, when you read the corresponding account in First Chronicles, what you get is an account that focuses on David's love for the Lord, his obedience to the Lord, his achievements on behalf of the Lord and God's favor on him in fact, commentators have long said that First Chronicles is God's view of David, a view that doesn't consider the sin, doesn't consider the darkness, but simply looks on him with the eye of redemption. In that spirit, let's examine what God was giving to Abraham's family and Rebekah. What were the five fulfillments of providence? First of all, a decisive woman. She was a decisive woman. Remember Eleazar's initial meeting with Rebecca all the way back in verse seventeen. Verse seventeen. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, "Please give me a little water to drink from your jar." She said, "Drink, my lord," and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. Not only does the narrator note that quickly she let down her jar, this would be a large ceramic jar for, for drawing water, but Eliezer also repeated this detail when he told the story to the family. In verse 46, she quickly let down her jar from her shoulder. You remember when Rebekah was given the option to stay home for 10 days or maybe even longer, or to go away with this strange man to a new land? She gave what is recorded in Hebrew one word, I will go. Yep. I'm on my way. There's no sense of, let me pray about this. Let me think about it. There's no hesitation. I Think about this. She met a strange man the evening before, and that day she's packing her bag, saying, yeah, I'll go. She's decisive. Many years later, when Jacob has tricked his brother Esau out of his, not only his birthright, and Esau didn't really care much for his family anyway, he tricked him also out of his blessing, the blessing of his father Isaac, esau now is in a murderous rage and it was Rebekah who sent for jacob it, he was her favorite and she told him genesis 27 basically pack up you're going to see your uncle laban you're going to stay a while and she was decisive we also recall that it was Rebekah's plan for jacob to trick his nearly blind elderly father isaac into giving jacob the all-important family blessing of god But Rebekah, listen carefully, in her own human fashion, in her flawed way, was rightly following God's will for Jacob. How do we know this? Rebekah waited 20 years to be able to have children until God opened her womb and gave her twins. And while she was pregnant, the twins were wrestling and struggling in the womb and she prayed to God In Genesis 25, 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. Listen to this. The older shall serve the younger. Who was the younger? It was Jacob. He would be the chosen line to form the nation of Israel someday. And so God providentially used a decisive woman to be Jacob's mother. There's a second fulfillment of providence. She was a hospitable woman she was a hospitable woman this quality is so important for a woman of god and rebecca had it in spades when eliezer asked for a little water for himself she could have taken the one minute it took to give him a refreshing drink take a second but she didn't do that verse 20 so she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water and she drew for all his camels the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Now, this is a big deal. Giving one man a drink of water, that's, that's not that bad. You can drink a couple of big glasses and that's fine. He has 10 camels. And depending on how depleted a camel is of water, a camel can drink anywhere between 20 and 50 gallons of water in between 3 and 15 minutes. What does this mean? It means that she was probably drawing water for two or three hours. Going to the well, drawing it up, putting it in the trough. It's empty. Drawing water, going to the well. How do you water a camel? You water a camel until they're done drinking. And so she just kept going and going and going. And this would be her lifestyle. She would prove this over many years to be a hospitable woman. We know from Genesis 27 that although she undoubtedly had many servants, she still prepared food for her husband personally. And she knew the food that, she, that he loved and the ones that he didn't. In fact, this is the type of woman who engenders the love of those around her. The hospitable woman makes me think of Tabitha in Acts chapter 9, who had died and all the widows of the church were weeping and showing one another all the clothes that Tabitha had made for them. She was known to be, according to Acts 9.36, full of good works and acts of charity. What a great woman that God chose to be Jacob's mother, to be really the princess of this family. There's a third fulfillment of providence. She is a loving woman. She's a loving woman. Don't judge her too harshly for helping Jacob trick Isaac. I think many mothers will do anything to help a child, and she's no exception. You moms can understand that. There are times in your life where I love you, my husband, but not now. I'm going to focus on my child, and we all understand that. But many years earlier, when Isaac was in deep need of comfort after the death of his mother, they were so very close. His mother Sarah, Rebecca successfully filled that void. Look at the end of chapter twenty-four, verse sixty-one. Then Rebecca and her and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebecca and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer roy and was li- dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. Stop right there for just a moment. Who has always been the master to this point? It's been Abraham. But now he says of Isaac, this is my master. In other words, you are about to meet the one who will be running this whole family, the one who is the chosen one of God. The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. Now, what is that? That's not shyness. What that is, is ladies, that's the the equivalent of stopping to make sure your makeup is refreshed. She's stopping to make herself look presentable to a man who would be her husband that she's never met before. Verse 66, And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Listen, there's no guarantee here that these two are going to hit it off. There's no guarantee. It may just be that they're fulfilling a function, that children need to be brought into the family. But that's not what she did. Here she is marrying a complete stranger, and yet she very quickly becomes the source of Isaac's comfort. She becomes the object of his love, the object of his affection. Whatever she did to engender that love, we thank the Lord for it, that in his wisdom he chose just the right one. There's a fourth fulfillment of Providence. We'll call this one A Shrewd Woman a shrewd woman. When Jacob was in trouble, Rebecca told him to pack up and get ready to go to her brother Laban back in Mesopotamia. But in this deeply patriarchal society, everything happened by permission of the head of the home. In this case, the kingly Isaac. And so he wasn't just going to leave. So how's Rebecca going to secure permission for Jacob to just suddenly take off? Well, she's shrewd. Years earlier, Esau, his twin brother, had broken his parents' heart, not only married outside the family, but married two pagan Hittite women who, according to Genesis twenty six thirty five, made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Young people, don't marry the wrong person. You'll destroy your family. Now, Rebekah needs to get Jacob away. So what does she tell Isaac and what's she going to tell him without lying, by the way? Genesis 27, 46, then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Oh, this is good. She says, basically, if Jacob marries a Hittite like Esau, just kill me now. (laughs) Very shrewd. And Isaac, I imagine, would say, ah, I have now gotten the hint. So he sent Jacob off, typical male, made it sound like his idea, sent Jacob off with his blessing and instructions to go back to Rebekah's family and to find a wife, which he did. These are great qualities. She's decisive, she's hospitable, she's loving, she's shrewd, but the fifth fulfillment of of providence is the most important one of all. She is an Abraham-like woman. She is an Abraham-like woman. God called Abraham to leave his homeland, to follow him, To leave a settled existence and to live now the life of a nomad in a land that he would never own in his lifetime. Rebecca, she's willing to follow the very same route Abraham had taken some 65 years earlier. She's summoned by God to leave her home, to go to Canaan, to leave all that she had known and to trust the Lord. You know, in in our culture today, when a young person gets married, you still have a thousand ways to communicate. But here, communication would be cut off. And this is very important because she would be the means by which the redemptive plan of God would continue. You remember that after the almost sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, the angel of the Lord blessed Abraham for his obedience. Genesis twenty two seventeen I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. What is that? That that Abraham's people would become innumerable and one particular descendant of Abraham, as we talked about last week, would possess the gates of his enemies. We saw the ultimate fulfillment of this is in Jesus Christ who would come and according to Psalm 24, be the king of glory who possesses and rules the world. And look what the angel of the Lord places in the heart of Rebekah's family as they send her away. Look at chapter 24, verse 60. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. The same blessing given to Abraham. The fulfillment of providence is that the angel of the Lord picked a young woman who would be his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother and the mother of the nation of Israel. But this literary masterpiece of the retelling of the story of God's providence of Eliezer, Finding Rebecca, it has in it interwoven themes. It has shades, it has colors, which gives us one more consideration. We'll call this one the application of providence. The application of providence, and I'd like to give you four of them. Four applications of providence, and we take these from the themes that are interwoven, that shade and color this story. What does it mean when the Bible says Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. What does it mean to enjoy the gracious providence of God as you acknowledge Him? Well, these four applications will tell us what it means to acknowledge Him. How to walk in this providence. The first application we'll call action. Action. We see this illustrated in this underlying theme In the text, three different times. Verse 17, the servant ran to meet her. Verse 20, Rebecca ran to the well. Verse 28, Rebecca ran to her house. There's a lot of people huffing and puffing here in this chapter. They're running back and forth. This would make a great stage play, lots of action. Waiting on the Lord does not mean lack of activity. You have plenty to do that you know is the Lord's will. It does mean doing all in your power as you seek the Lord's will and guidance. The providence of God includes God steering you. The great Charles Spurgeon said that when you're on the storm of life, you're in the storms of life in your rowboat, you row as if it all depends on you and you pray as if it all depends on God. There's action. The providence of God includes God steering you as you act, as you do, as you're proactive. There's a second application, a theme interwoven into this text, and that is prayer prayer a clear lesson here is that the angel of the lord is directing this whole drama and he's doing so through the interaction with the prayers of the faithful verse 12 eleazar prayed for success verse 26 eleazar gave thanks to god for leading him this far verse 31 rebecca's family calls him oh blessed by the lord this is a man who's blessed by led by god he told the family of his prayers and he gave god glory the family blessed rebecca in a prayer That God would make her a nation and produce a king. Listen, providence and prayer go hand in hand. What is your prayer? Your prayer is, Lord, show me the next step. Show me the next indicator. Show me the next help. There's a third application of providence. We'll call this one steadfast love. Steadfast love. We see interwoven here, the all-important Hebrew word has said, covenant loyal love. And it's playing a big role in this drama. We see the loyal love of God in verse 12. And he said, O oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show Hesed, steadfast love, to my master Abraham. We see the loyal love of God in verse 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his Hesed, his steadfast love, and his faithfulness toward my master And we see a request for the loyal, steadfast love of the people that God would direct. Verse 49. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love, hesed, and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. God's steadfast love is shown in that he will never forsake those who are his. He will never forsake his covenant with you in Christ to keep your salvation from sin secure and when Christ died on the cross for your sins, this was fully sufficient to secure your eternal reward with God. But Jesus also said that it goes the other way. He also said that anyone who follows him must take up his cross. It's a phrase that means to die to yourself. It's not symbolic at all the way we sometimes make it. The, the people to whom Jesus said, take up your cross, wouldn't have understood it as a symbol. They would have understood it as a walk to death you take up your cross and you follow him you express the death to self by full obedience and humble submission to the Lord can I put it this way if you're deliberately choosing to rebel against God in any given area of your life you should not expect to see the clear hand of God in guiding you and in helping you you should not expect to have the delight of seeing God working and moving and blessing your life because here's the deal In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. That's the deal. Steadfast love. One more application of providence. Worship. Worship. Humble worship is interwoven here. Verse 26, Eleazar bowed his head, knelt down and worshiped the Lord. Verse 48, I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord. Verse 52, when Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And just a little extra emphasis here, three times we see the servant kneeling before the Lord and just to drive the picture home, verse 11 says he made the camels kneel down as well. Obviously, camels kneel when they're at rest and we can all picture the majestic sight of these huge animals down on their knees. But this is a specific word that every other time it's used in the Old Testament always means to kneel before God. Psalm 95, 6, O come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And so we get that picture. Everyone who is experiencing the joy of walking in the providence of God, they're on their knees. Listen, if your life isn't characterized by a continual return to worship, of a formal acknowledgement of the lordship and the supremacy of God through Christ who died for your sins, why would you expect to see God working marvelously in your life? Why would you expect that? Get on your knees before God. Sing praises to God. Gather with his people. You want to see God working mightily in your life? The providence of God is visible. It is obvious in those who would act, those who would pray, those who demonstrate steadfast love and those who worship you do those four things you'll see God moving I would challenge you whatever document you want to open whatever notebook you want to have begin to do those things and then record how God leads and just watch what a beautiful story that the angel of the Lord picked Israel's mother and from whom by the way ultimately would come his own mother Mary when God would become flesh and the angel of the Lord from henceforth would be known as Jesus of Nazareth. And it is this Jesus who came to earth to die, to offer himself as a sacrifice for the sin penalty of all who would trust their souls to him. It is the providence of God that led you to the moment of acknowledging Christ as your Savior. It is God's work alone. And toward that end, it is our joy here in just a moment to celebrate the Lord's table, to remember what Christ has done for you. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, we are bowled over by these 67 verses. Just a, a complete overwhelming proof of your glorious providential working in the lives of those that you would choose to bless and to keep. And each one of us here who knows Christ as our Savior, we can perhaps in some shadowed fashion trace backwards the providence of God your kindness which led us to that moment where the spirit of god regenerated our hearts and opened our eyes to the beauties and the glories and the truths of christ our savior it is your providence that drove us to our knees to acknowledge our sin to repent to weep before you to be sorrowful for our own sins And it is your providence that lifted us up, that lifted our countenance, that we might look upon the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very essence of the glory of God, and we might look upon our elder brother, the one to whom we are now called friends. And so we thank you, we praise you for your providence, which leads us in life, but most importantly, led us to the cross. And it is toward that end that we would now acknowledge and remember our dear Savior, by remembering his body and his blood. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.